Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Colonel Douglas McGregor. Colonel McGregor is a decorated combat veteran, the author of five books, a PhD, and a defense and foreign policy consultant. Colonel McGregor is widely known inside the U.S., Europe, Israel, Russia, China, and Korea for both his leadership in the Battle of 73 Easting, the U.S. Army's largest tank battle since World War II, and for his groundbreaking books on military transformation. Colonel McGregor retired from the military in 2004, and in 2020, President Trump appointed him to serve as senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense, a post he held until President Trump left office. He holds an MA in Comparative Politics and a PhD in International Relations from the University of Virginia. Colonel McGregor has testified as an expert witness before the Senate and House Armed Services Committees, and he's appeared as a defense analyst on Fox News, CNN, BBC, Sky News, and Public Radio. Today, he joins me to share his expert opinion and insights on the war in Ukraine. Colonel McGregor, welcome to the show. Sure. I just want to start out by, and for everybody listening in their car, while they're jogging at the gym, you can go to the show notes page as usual, and, and you'll find a map of Ukraine there. But Colonel, I wanted to run by you my understanding of what the war had resulted in up until this latest offense in Kharkiv counteroffensive, what they're calling it. And I'm I'm picturing the map of Ukraine with the two breakaway provinces, Donetsk and Luhansk in the east, and kind of a band of territory that goes all the way over to Kherson which is just north of the Crimean Peninsula. I guess my first question for you is, does does Russia control all that territory or only some key cities like Mariupol and Kherson? I think it's important that people understand what Ukraine is like. Ukraine in, in the area east of the Dnieper River is open and rolling. 
there are no mountains, not even significant hills per se. So that's the first thing to understand. There are no good roads other than perhaps one or two roads linking cities and towns. Uh, in, in fact, in most cases, it's one good road that goes between various towns and cities. And there are no large numbers of villages dotting the countryside. In other words, the vast open areas, a lot of it's under cultivation, a lot of it isn't. But where the Russians are sitting right now is in a, a, a landmass that probably resembles a banana. If you were to put a banana on the map and, and the top of the banana rests near Kharkov and the bottom of the banana is just short of Odessa inside this construct called Ukraine, that's what the Russians control. And the interesting part about it is that it's 95% of Ukrainian gross domestic product comes from exactly where the Russians are sitting. So the Russians are sitting on top of the areas that are valuable with mineral resources, with what many now think is the largest natural gas field in Europe, even larger than the one that the Norwegians control in the North Sea. So this, this is all valuable territory. Whatever there was that you could produce with heavy industry lies in this area. These are the only areas in Ukraine, quite frankly, worth having. And these are the areas that are traditionally Russian, not Ukrainian. And again, this goes back to the whole problem with the Ukrainian state construct. This is a, a creature of the Soviet Union that included vast areas of terrain like Crimea and eastern Ukraine that were never Ukrainian. But the Ukrainians are treating all of this as sort of died to the last man to retake it, having already died to almost the last man to maintain it. The Russians were never interested in moving much beyond what you see on the map. That's simply because they're, they're in the areas where the majority of the population is ethnically Russian and everybody speaks Russian. So that, that's the first thing everybody needs to understand. Secondly, from the very beginning, the Russians, under orders from Putin, have tried as much as possible to avoid collateral damage, avoid killing civilians, avoid harming infrastructure. They wanted to move as quickly as they could, but only at a speed that would avoid that kind of collateral damage. As a result, everything has taken much longer than it would have normally. And certainly for the first, I would say, four weeks until probably the end of March, mid-April, I think Moscow still believed that there could be a negotiated settlement. And what's changed since mid-April is the understanding in Moscow that there is no one interested in negotiating an end to the conflict. They, they can't find a negotiating partner anywhere, not, certainly not in Washington, which seems to be interested in dragging this out in perpetuity. Also, no one for the moment in Europe. And so the Russians have settled into a very different form of warfare. They aren't taking heavy casualties, haven't taken heavy casualties for weeks. Their casualties are actually quite light, and they have moved most of their regular army forces back. And you have a lot of what we would call contract soldiers or mercenaries or allied forces or reservists at the front, backed by huge quantities of Russian rocket artillery and conventional artillery, as well as missiles that can be fired from the air, from the sea, Black Sea, and so forth, to defend the territory. And what we saw happen quite recently up in the northern portion of this, which represents 1% of the terrain currently controlled by the Russians, that is, in and around Kharkov, 
is the Russians had placed a very light screen of paramilitary police with some paratroopers and some naval infantry in front of what we would call Kharkov and, and the area just south of it. And uh, I, I surmise, that no one's going to admit to it, I guess, in, in detail, but I surmise that our satellite-based intelligence showed the picture of uh, essentially an empty, an empty area with only a very light screen and directed the Ukrainians to attack there, which they did. And the Russians decided, look, we've got other fish to fry down south that are much more important. So they withdrew, and the Ukrainians advanced against virtually no resistance. However, once they closed in on this town of Izium, they began to take enormous quantities of rocket, conventional artillery, and airstrikes, and took horrendous casualties as a result. Now, the Russians, in the meantime, had been defeating two major counteroffensives down in southern Ukraine, across from, you, you pointed out, Kherson, in that southern region. And thousands and thousands and thousands of Ukrainian soldiers were killed and wounded. In fact, right now, we estimate that for the last two to three months, the Ukrainians have taken at least 20,000 casualties a month. So if we add that to the total, we're looking at probably 150 to 180,000 casualties that the Ukrainians have taken, and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 80,000 dead. Ukraine's armed forces are in ruins. In fact, if you listen to what the West says, and this is very important for your listeners, if you listen to what comes through the radio and television from the Western media or from the various retired generals about the Russians, drop Russians, substitute Ukraine, and you have a pretty accurate picture. Ukraine is, is really devastated. The Ukrainian armed forces are devastated. They're literally running out of manpower. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group. While all Access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos, or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. There's so much there to unpack. The The first thing I'll just point out that that was a great way to characterize it, the banana, because I was actually, when posing the question to you, I was trying to think of what, what's the shape here. It's kind of curved. And yeah, if you take a rough banana shape and put it one end of it in the Luhansk Oblast, as they call it, and then just lay it over the, the southern portion of Ukraine, that's what I understood to be the Russian controlled territory. 
So the one thing Russian and U.S. sources and, you know, the, the U.S. news sources have just been completely unreliable. And that's not to say that everything that comes out of the other side is reliable either. But everyone seems to agree something happened in Kharkov. But when you look at it in relation to the banana, it's somewhat north and east and something that I wouldn't I'm not surprised to hear the Russians just really didn't defend very stalwart really is that correct well there was no defense at all it was just a screen line there were, were no defenses per se and large numbers were as i pointed out very light forces including what we would we would call them swat teams paramilitary police this sort of thing and and, and i think the russians have always tried to run what i would call a limited campaign in other words minimize the numbers of forces that you need and use them, but use them carefully, and minimize the casualties that you you would otherwise take by avoiding direct frontal assaults, maneuver, and maximize the use of firepower. Uh, and that's what's been going on for the last six plus months. So I, I think I think people are confused because they say, "Well, look, why why did they just let that go?" Well, first of all, none of the territory that I talked about before that has ninety five percent of Ukraine's mineral resources, oil, gas, agricultural output, and so forth. None of that is in the vicinity of Kharkov. The reason the Russians will eventually regain control of Kharkov is very simple. Historically, it's a Russian city, not a Ukrainian city, a Russian-speaking city. It always was. The same thing is true for Odessa. Odessa is a Russian city. It was a Russian-speaking city. It always was. Historic Ukraine is much further north and borders on the Dnieper River Valley and a little bit to the east of the Dnieper in the north, up where Kiev is. That's historic Ukraine. So the areas that we're talking about for probably 800 years, 500, 800 years, something like that, were under Mongol Tartar domination. And the Tartar Khanate in Crimea was a tributary state of the Sultan of Turkey. The Russians eventually overwhelmed and threw the Tartars out, largely because the Tartars spent most of their time stealing slaves. In other words, they'd come up and captured large numbers of Slavic children in Russia and Ukraine, and then resell them in the slave markets of Constantinople or what we call Istanbul. That ended in, in 1776, and since 1776, Russia has controlled those areas. And those areas had no large cities or towns or anything in them. Everything that is there now was built under the czars after the, the Mongol Tartar forces and Ottoman forces were driven out. So what we see now, I think, is a change in strategy. The Russians have said, well, fine, you refuse to negotiate with us. You refuse to, to terminate this war. Fine, we'll let it run. Russia is not being harmed by sanctions. The Russian economy is actually flourishing largely because it, it has everything that everyone in the world needs. And most of this is being sold off to China and other states that are not part of Europe and North America. So if you walk away from Europe and North America, the rest of the world is doing business with Russia. What Russia wants to do, along with China, India, and many other countries, is set up a parallel financial system that, in other words, they want to de-dollarize stop using the dollar. That's a tougher That's a tougher thing to do because those institutions will not spring up overnight. It'll take them several years, but it's underway. And at least on a small scale, and I shouldn't say small because 
China and India are enormous economies. They're now doing business with the Russians in their own currency. They're not using dollars. And we, we also have seen that the Saudis and the Emirates are willing to do business with the Russians in their currency as opposed to dollars. Remember, the petrodollar is very important to our global financial dominance. So those are all bad trends. But the trends on that side will take longer to work. Right now in Europe, the situation is very grim. I, I don't know how much Americans are hearing about what's going on in Germany and France and in the Czech Republic and various countries in Europe, but they've had demonstrations involving hundreds of thousands of people all over the continent demanding an end to support for Ukraine in this war. And we haven't even gotten into the winter yet. And we just had our first snowfall in southern Poland. And people are anticipating a cold winter. There are, there are individuals on, in the West saying, oh, well, that's all right. We'll get our energy from Africa. Well, good luck with that. I don't think you're going to see the energy that Russia provides supplanted by very much energy from the Middle East or Africa anytime soon. So I think we're in for extremely rough winter. The, the Germans have already instructed police to prepare plans to deal with unrest over the winter. You're, you have people that are rationing not only energy, they're also going into stores with empty shelves uh, because they're, they're dependent on everything from cooking oil to wheat and other things that come from Russia and white Russia. And those countries aren't shipping anything to the West. So I think the, the Russians can afford to wait right now and take things very slowly as things worsen in Europe. And in the meantime, I think their strategy is to invite the Ukrainian forces, what are left of them, to impale themselves on Russian defenses of the territory that they control. So they're, they're, they are literally bleeding Ukraine white. And this is a kind of interesting development because that's to some extent what happened during World War II. In the last year and a half to two years of World War II, the, Hitler kept insisting on holding every inch of ground and then he insisted on counterattacking to retake every lost inch of ground. And the combination essentially destroyed the German armed forces, destroyed them logistically, destroyed their manpower. Uh, that's effectively what's happened with Ukraine. So I think the Russians can wait. And by the time they move on Odessa, I don't think there's going to be a great deal of resistance to them on the ground because most of the Ukrainian forces will be destroyed. They'll take Odessa. That turns the rump Ukraine into a landlocked country, and then eventually they'll turn their attention back north again and, and recapture Kharkov. And as far as the Russians are concerned, that's all they're interested in. We, Meanwhile, we keep trying to convince everybody that the Russians, who have relatively small ground forces, are, are interested in attacking the rest of Europe and reconquering Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. It's all nonsense. There's no interest in that at all. If you mentioned that when the Russians believed that there might be a negotiated settlement, would they have been willing to give up any of the territory they had already taken in that settlement, in your opinion? Yes, I think so. They hadn't lost very many people at that point. See, the longer a war lasts, the more blood that is spilled, the more anger, hostility, and hatred grows. Let's be frank. Uh, this is very obviously the case with the Ukrainians. We had cultivated hatred and hostility to Russia in Ukraine with the government that we helped to install in 2014. That's very clear. But once you start killing large numbers of people in combat, the hatred grows very, very rapidly. And you get into this terrible, terrible situation where you, you say, we've already lost this much. 
we cannot afford to give anything up. So the more people that die in a particular action, the, the less willingness there is after the action to reach any sort of negotiated settlement. But in the first month, I would say first, really the first six weeks, the Russians were quite serious. And if you go back to April, you'll see that Zelensky actually said publicly that he, he could be comfortable with neutrality. And there was a willingness to give up any further claims to Crimea. Remember, the Russians said no more claim on Crimea, recognize that it's Russian, grant autonomy or independence to the two republics in, in eastern Ukraine that are Russian. Those, those were preconditions. But they were really interested, as far as the rest of Ukraine was concerned, in, in neutrality. They simply wanted Ukraine to be neutral and not part of NATO. And the Ukrainians were beginning to see, well, well, perhaps we can come to some sort of solution. Well, we crushed that. We and the British collectively crushed any further interest in coming to any terms at all with the Russians. And if you listen to Biden and his public statements, if you listen to Lloyd Austin, if you listen to Tony Blinken, everyone is essentially taking the position that either you, Russia, unconditionally capitulate to our demands or the war goes on. Well, that's not going to happen. Russia's not going to capitulate unconditionally to anything we want. That's sort of like saying, you know, if you don't agree to evacuate New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas and Southern California, we Mexicans will fight you forever. <laughs> well, go ahead. You know, we're not capitulating and giving up New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, and Southern California. And that's the view in Russia. Forget it. We're, we're not doing business on those on those terms any longer. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. How could I think about love with a girl like you? I've read in some places, alternative media, media, so to speak, that that there is that the Russians have configured their manufacturing base, that they can pretty much wage this war, replacing the munitions and other armaments in real time, so to speak, so that they're not depleting a stockpile that would take time to replenish. Whereas on the other side, all these weapons that the U.S. and the rest of NATO are sending in are coming out of stockpiles that they can't replenish in real time. So in other words, there's going to be a time where 
NATO runs out and, and Russia can keep going. Is there any truth to that? Yes. In fact, I would argue that our own war stocks are dangerously low now. We've, we've cleaned them out effectively in terms of munitions, as well as much, much of many of the equipment sets that we've been delivering. You know, we, we are in a difficult position now, and you have an even more fragile condition in Europe. Remember, the Europeans have effectively made themselves military dependencies of the greater United States empire. So they don't have much to begin with. And what they've shipped, they can't replace. Now, this has been seen as a great windfall profit for American military industrial congressional complex. Everybody sees this as this is a great opportunity to make lots of money. Not only will the Pentagon have to replace most of this equipment with stuff that uh, we build, so will the Europeans. And if you look carefully at Poland, and I think Germany less so now, uh, certainly uh, Slovakia, the Baltic states, Romania, uh, they're starting to make deals with the United States to replenish their stocks, to re-outfit re their armed forces with U.S. equipment. That, of course, is mana from heaven to Congress that grows fat and wealthy as a result of these uh, income transfers, because what you have is this shell game. We, we send equipment to Ukraine. Congress does not send very much cash there directly. It sends equipment, though. And we pay for the advisors. Uh, so the advisors go there, uh, whatever advisor means at this point, advisory teams. And the Ukrainians get the advisors and they get the equipment. They don't get much cash. The cash then goes to the Pentagon. And from the Pentagon, the cash then goes to U.S. defense industries, from which then come these enormous donations that show up in political action committees for people in the House and the Senate. That's how someone like Lynn, or our, our friend Lynn Cheney went from being worth $7 million when she entered office to being worth $46 million when she left. So, yeah, I, I, in my own career, I know sales are great, but you do have to fulfill. You have to deliver the products sooner or later. Is, is Even with all this money being funneled to the defense contractors, how long can they go on supplying the products before it's going to be, well, we got a six-week wait now. We have a two-month wait. I don't think they care. I mean, why would you care? As long as you've got a contract and money coming in, it doesn't make any difference. But I think there is a sense right now in the industry that they better get all that they can get now because there won't be much available in the future. Now, this, this moves into different territory. We've been talking about you know, the minimal impact of our sanctions on Russia and the devastating impact of our sanctions against Russia on Europe and the foolish European governments that have signed on for this stupidity who are now in jeopardy of being replaced. I can't, I can't exaggerate the level of explosiveness in Germany and in France, in those two societies right now as examples. And those are major, major players Germany, of course, is the, is the giant elephant in the room economically, and its economy is in serious, serious trouble. Now, some of this you can attribute to the green revolution nonsense, but the whole Russia business has compounded it because they've insisted, you know, this foreign minister was telling everyone, and Habeck has been telling everyone, Bernbach and Habeck, we Germans have to suffer. We have to suffer for Ukraine. We have to suffer to build liberal democracy, to defend the new world order. 
and to defend globalism and all this stuff. The Germans aren't interested in any of that, of course. And that's why it's only a matter of time until these people in Berlin are swept away. But instead of restarting some nuclear power plants, which they loathe and dislike, they're continuing to shut them down. And they're trying to restart now some coal-fired plants to try and compensate for the liquefied natural gas and oil and so forth that's not coming to them. But it's not working very well. And so other than praying for a very warm winter, uh, there's not a whole lot that I think the Germans can do to rescue themselves from real disaster. And everybody knows this in Europe. We're not getting this picture here in the United States. I mean, I talk to a lot of Germans all the time. I lived over there. I studied over there. And they're telling me what I'm describing to you. France is equally explosive. I mean, Macron and his government is loathed and hated. I mean, there's not much debate about that. And you also have to, in the background, you have to throw in the refugee problem. Not, I'm not talking just about Ukrainian refugees. I'm talking about these millions of Muslims that have come out of the Middle East and North Africa and other parts of the world. And that's a huge problem regarding criminality and these other matters. So you've seen, you've seen, for instance, a change in government already in Sweden. For the first time, you have a right of center government in Sweden in decades. And the woman who was there, who was the sort of globalist supreme, has been booted out. You have a similar situation emerging in Italy with a right of center party coming to power. Now, save these countries from disaster? I, I don't really think so. I think there's there are all sorts of reasons why we're all in the West in trouble. But it, it gives you an appreciation for what I think is coming in Germany and France. And when those turnovers occur, the, the, the predisposition, well, we, we want to make sure we have good relations with Washington. We have to stick with Washington. But eventually, it will be, my God, if we stick with Washington, we're all going to go under so that's got to end. That's why I, I refer to most of the people that are going to come to power in Europe, and I think in the near future in the United States, is belonging to the Kerensky class. Kerensky, of course, was a social democrat who, when the czar abdicated his power and responsibilities to this social democratic government in Russia in 1917, he took over. And he did many good things, but he forgot two things. What were the two things that were most important? Number one, end the war. End it. Get out of it. Number two, feed the population. <laughs> feed the population. Uh, he didn't do it. He said, no, I have to stay in the war so that I'll continue to receive aid from the French and the British. Well, that was ridiculous. The, the aid wasn't worth it. And of course, our friend Lenin understood that very well. So Kerensky lasted eight months, and then you got Lenin. And Lenin made the famous comment. He said, every society is three meals away from chaos. Well, that's Europe, and that's the United States. When every government's principal responsibilities are what? Shelter the population, protect the population, feed the population, secure the population. Those are the things that we expect governments to do. If you don't do those things, you're finished, you're out. And Putin, I think, and his advisors have wisely concluded Included, well, if they don't want peace and they refuse to negotiate an end to this insanity in Ukraine, which has done terrible damage to Ukraine as well, and cost them tens of thousands of lives, driven 10 million people out of the country, well, then the hell with them. We'll sit here and we'll let this drag on because we're in good shape. We have all the food, all the energy that we need. 
We have the finished products that we can get elsewhere from from other sources, sources other than Europe and the United States. And one of the things you mentioned, and it's it's it might sound at first off the subject, but it's not. A few years ago, before the COVID pandemic and and all connected to that, we were being told uh, that quote unquote renewable energy was just on the cusp of of being able to replace either a large part or all of fossil fuels. And the way they used to get to renewable energy being anything more than a rounding error was to slide natural gas in there as as renewable. And that's the very thing that is now cut off from Europe. And and I, I mean, we have really a humanitarian disaster about to occur in Europe. Do you think that leads to the end of this war? This, I mean, I'm talking just months away. Yes, I think that uh, the war will end, especially when Berlin decides that this can't go on any longer. Berlin is is the the major power in Europe. There are two major powers in Europe, and this is what Americans need to understand, Tom. One is Berlin, the other is Moscow. Now, what does that mean in Paris? What does it mean in London? I think eventually those governments will also throw in the towel on us. And I think we're going to throw in the towel. And I say that because there are already discussions in the White House, in the State Department, behind the scenes saying, look, this is not working out as planned. We are not damaging Russia. You know, everything that you're hearing about the failures in Russia, you apply those to Ukraine. Uh, Russia is not running out of troops. Russia has enormous resources. Russia has a population that's, what, three, four times the size of Ukraine. Russia is not losing the war. It's not going to lose the war. And people are saying, how do we get out of this? And I think ultimately what will happen is that the Europeans will take the initiative and there will be discussions and it will end. And the Ukrainians are going to be told to shut up in color. And the Ukrainians aren't going to like it, but I imagine that that'll be the end of Mr. Zelensky. And he can retire to his estates somewhere in Italy and, and out on the outskirts of Miami by, with his friends and his funding from various oligarchs, including Soros. But I don't think it, it will go on indefinitely. And here in the United States, you know what we do when things fall apart? What do we do, Tom? What, what, is, what, is, what do Americans do? We stop talking about it. Yeah. How, how do we declare victory once we lose? Yeah. Well, you don't even have to declare victory. Because if we go back and look just over the last six months, we went for months with a very little discussion of anything happening in Ukraine. It, it virtually disappeared from the front page, so to say. Then all of a sudden, we had this drive-by shooting to Izium, where there were no Russians. And the Russians took almost no casualties. Just walked out and said, fine, knock yourselves out. We have other fish to fry down in the Donbass, especially in Bakhmut, which is a town in southern Ukraine that is the hub, uh, the last hub of logistical support and resistance there. That's about to be taken over and destroyed. And then then that's the next step to uh, Odessa. But we've heard nothing. And then all of a sudden, this drive-by shooting has become evidence for the sort of Ukraine rising from the ashes like the phoenix. No, it's all nonsense. Uh, and this too will pass. And what we do is what we did after Vietnam. We leave. We say nothing. And the damage is done. What, do we, what have we done in Afghanistan and Iraq? We've largely left. How often do we talk about it? 
We maintain a very small force in Iraq. What, 1,000 people, 1,500 people or something connected with the embassy? And then we have four or 500 people up in Syria. And we're, we're reluctant to completely pull out for fear that, you know, we'll be castigated here at home in the media as having surrendered, as having failed. Well, we've already failed. It's already over. The initiative is passed. We don't control anything. But Americans then are, are given something else to focus on. And I think the thing that Americans are going to focus on, correct me if you think I'm wrong, is what's happening here. Yeah, it's unfortunate. We're we're going to feel economic effects from this. And in, in, I guess until it gets as bad as in Europe, nobody will question this foreign policy because it largely doesn't affect us. We don't, no bombs drop on our cities. And, and that that's really the saddest thing. Let's hope that before things get really dire in Europe, that what you described happens sooner than later. I think that's the best we can hope for, right? No, I, I think so. And I think this will be a catharsis that the Europeans, especially the Germans, have to go through because the Germans moved into the sort of comfortable position as permanently apologizing for everything bad in the world for the last 75 years. And now they realize, well, listen, that's over. And if we continue to insist on making ourselves dependent on the United States, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. So we've got to forge a new policy. We've got to build our own future. We've got to chart a new course into that future. That's very important. I, I frankly think that Europeans need to think in those terms, and it's, it's way overdue. Or, and this, of course, was President Trump's view, that they, they had to th be their, quote-unquote, own first responders. But I think he was absolutely right. And in today's world, given the, the nature of modern technology, you, you cannot reenact World War II anymore. It won't work. Listen, I know your time is, is valuable. I have one more question for you on the political landscape. If Trump were to get back in, and in your experience with Trump's first administration, how different was the foreign policy? Obviously, there was a foot off the gas pedal approach as far as all these regime changes and 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 not just active wars, but coups and what was going on in Libya and and so many other countries in the Middle East, would we expect more than just put off the gas and a, and a substantive change if there were a second Trump administration? Well, that depends heavily on two things. First of all, the people with whom he's going to surround himself. And unfortunately, I still see many of the same people surrounding the president today who were there at the end of his administration. In most cases, those were bad choices providing bad advice and bad information. I think he needs a new slate, frankly. People who are really committed to the American America First agenda and its supporting pillars. The second thing is we don't know what's going to happen in this midterm election. Everyone is assuming that uh, the Republicans are going to sweep the House and the Senate. My question is, well, let's assume that happens. Who are all these Republicans that are going to support the president? Show me their names. Well, we know some of them. But based on my own experience, the majority of the Republicans were deeply rooted in the swamp along with their Democratic colleagues. In other words, if you look at the stupidity in, that's happening in Eastern Europe, because from the very beginning, I it never occurred to me that we would ever drag out this war in Eastern Ukraine. I thought for sure that the president would immediately call Putin and say, look, let's 
let's call a ceasefire. Let's sit down. We've got to come to some sort of arrangement here. We respect your legitimate security interests. And we also want peace for Ukraine. We'll accept neutrality. Let's negotiate the rest of it. It never happened. It, the opposite happened. We threatened regime change in, in Moscow, which, of course, is crazy. So wh where are these Republicans who are actually going to support the American first agenda? I, I, I'm not sure there are enough of them there that would enable the president to come in in, in another two years and run the country. In other words, we've got to go through some more problems of our own here in the United States. I mean, how much criminality are Americans willing to put up with? I mean, if I look at Philadelphia, where I grew up, North Philadelphia has, has been bad for decades, but it's a war zone. We have many war zones in many large urban centers. How long are we going to put up with this? There are too many Americans who say, well, it doesn't affect me. You know, where, where, where's What's the problem? Same thing with open borders and millions of illegals pouring into the country. Oh, well, people, they, they want to come here. Well, I, I don't give a damn. We don't want them here. We can't afford them. We can't assimilate them. The economy doesn't need them. That's all nonsense. We, we have to secure the borders. Are we going to do that? And then you turn to the armed forces. Are the armed forces going to secure the borders? Will the armed forces defend the state here at home? I'm not talking about overseas. I, we've got problems with the armed forces now, staggering problems that Americans have no idea what's happening inside the armed forces. So the bottom line is, I don't know. Well, listen, I appreciate the time you spent here. Where do people go to get more of your expertise? What's the best hub if there is one? Well, you've got my website. I stay off social media because I've always thought that, you know, tweeting and these kinds of things and Facebook are opportunities to be stupid. So I stay off of all of those things. So you've just got to Google Colonel Douglas McGregor and my website will come up and whatever I've recently written will be published there. And that's, that's your best bet. And of course, thanks to nice people like you, I I'm periodically on, on podcasts and that's about it. We'll link to the website for sure. And again, thanks for spending this time. Appreciate it. Sure, Tom. Thank you. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here, including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to ItsTheFedStupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's The Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.